Welcome to episode 5 of the Super Top Podcast. I'm Oshin, recording from Sarajevo. And I'm Podrig, recording from Vancouver. And we're very happy this week to be joined by Jared Sinclair. Hi, Jared. Howdy. We, we had uh, Brent Simmons on a couple of episodes ago, and we discussed the idea that great indie apps can maybe only be made for love instead of for money. And on the last episode, we reflected on that a bit just between the two of us and discussed the kind of apps that we would personally be interested in making for love if money wasn't a factor. We asked Jared if he would join us this week to kind of continue this discussion. Jared works at the moment for Black Pixel. He's probably very well known for working his work on apps like Repost, which was a client for App.net, and Unread, an RSS reader, which is now a super top app and more, almost certainly the most beautiful app in our catalogue. So we wanted to ask you here, Jared, today to talk through these things and see how you feel about the idea of making apps for love instead of money. Sounds fun. So what kinds of things usually draw you to a side project? Like, say, um, you made an app called Time Zones. Was it a year and a half ago now, I think? Yeah, that one was definitely a scratch my own itch problem. Like a lot of us, I find things that I just drive me nuts about Apple's first-party apps that ship with the phone. Like, you know, it's so frustrating. Like, why is this font this color or this size or not here? Like, why can't they do X? You know, you know with Time Zones, it's like... Uh, I don't have any family that lives in Chicago. All my family lives in Nashville. Like, why can I put Nashville or at least change the name of the entry from Chicago to Nashville? Like, so <laughs> with time zones, like, that was really the main thing is just to turn a label into a text field. <laughs> right. <laughs> so just to do, to like, as a reaction to something that's already there, to do, like, scratch an itch and do a better job of it for your, for your own use case. In retrospect, I may have had higher hopes for it than I should. I think I charged for it out of the gate, and maybe that wasn't a big deal. But uh, over the past couple of years, thinking about how to think about side projects has been a challenge. What do you hope to get from, from doing side projects? And you're saying, has that changed over time? My big takeaway from my personal life the past few years has been, I would say, don't allow your work to spill over into a hobby and don't turn your hobbies into work. And that has been like something I've learned the hard way over and over again. Uh, you know, like previous jobs working for startups, there would be times where in like in the context of a startup, when the sky is seemingly the limit and you can, everything is new, you can kind of build whatever you want early on. It's tempting to start wanting the company to go a certain direction because you'd be the one to build it and you could actually make it happen. So it feels like it's just right there and why can't everybody else see it? And you go down that path and start making everything about your work really personal. Then, like, soon, like, you don't have any other hobbies because in your spare time, you're, like, working on this thing obsessively, like, way too many hours every week. And invariably, you end up burning out and despising your job and despising your coworkers and, and your boss. And, and then with time, you realize, no, no, I was actually caring too much about the work, which which seems anathema to, at least in the States, like, this, like idea of American work ethic. You should never take a vacation. You should be grateful any for any money that they give you. And if there's time to lean, there's time to clean, you know, there's that like idea, like you should always be working. And yet what I found is that if I separate my work life and my personal life more rigidly, if I don't allow myself to take my work personally, my work is better and more satisfying. Uh, and the flip side of that is not allowing a hobby to turn into work. 
And which is really hard if on the side your hobby looks a lot like your day job. Right. That's really interesting. Like, how do you get the benefit of the motivation that passion for what you're doing gives you without, you know, obviously you can go way too far and end up being your whole life, but you want to care a little bit about what you're doing, right? You can't be completely detached from it. Yeah, there was, I think it was the Silence of the Lambs novel. <laughs> Clarice in her mind kept remembering a quote from T.S. Eliot. Teach us to care and not to care. Teach us to be still. I have no idea what that means, but what I think it means is you have to want something enough to get out of bed in the morning and actually, you know, do something productive towards that goal, but not enough that the, like, activity itself becomes out of your control. And it's a really hard balance to strike. And so when you try to reach that balance with your working life, have you found over time that then that leaves room or makes room for you to apply other passions to your, your own stuff, your side stuff? It's a work in progress. I'm learning. For a long time, I was so burnt out on making that mistake over and over again of turning my work into my hobby that I had this long spell where I just, I would have ideas, but I would tell myself like, no, I can't. After enough time, though, it felt different. And so the past couple months, I've been working on side projects, a particular side project, and um, it's been great. But what I found is I have to like be ready to put a full stop to it. Right. If I feel myself letting it turn into work, if I start thinking too much about, well, how could I make money with that? Or how can that be sustainable? Or how is that going to scale? Like any of like those kind of thoughts, I just have to go, whoa, 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 er, time out. <laughs> I shut the computer, I put it away. And, you know, get out a book or do the New York Times crossword puzzles or whatever it is. Right. Yeah, that was something that struck me when we spoke to Brent. Sometimes he gets home and he only has 15 minutes to work on it. And, like, when I think about working on programming in particular, I imagine, like, I need to box off three hours at a time so that I can warm up, get something done, and then finish it off. But, yeah, it was quite interesting that he was saying that you have to just be able to allocate these small, small amounts of time when you have them. There's a great book that I found serendipitously in bookstore years ago. It's called Zen, oh, bear with me here, Zen and the Martial Arts. And it has very little to do with Zen or martial arts. <laughs> it's by this guy named Joe Hyams, who was a journalist in the 60s and 70s. He was like a middle-aged dude, really grumpy, out of shape. And he was frustrated because he came to martial arts so late in life, he wasn't able to do these crazy kicks that the younger students around him could learn so quickly. So his teacher's like, all right. You need to learn to give yourself time. And the guy's like, no, I have, I have patience. I'm patient. And his teacher says, no, I'm not talking about patience. Patience is the capacity for calm endurance. To give yourself time is to work actively towards a goal without setting a limit on how long it takes you to get there. <laughs> wow. And I've thought about that all the time since reading this little story. It's like, yeah, there is a difference between like patience and this other idea. And the, you know, that name that he gave it, like giving yourself time, like being able to sit down and do something just like for the act of doing it. Like the result is the same. You're still spending 15 or 20 minutes at a time, you know, whenever you can find it to work on something. But the difference is like enormous. Like you're turning something that otherwise would be work into something else. Hmm. Wow. <laughs> That's pretty cool. <laughs> really recommend that book. It's full of great stuff. Yeah. Recently, I've been trying to read through some like really academic computer science-y papers. And it's been like they describe algorithms in language, uh, rather, like there's no code that goes with it, or at least not that I've been able to find. It's one of those moments where I'm trying to learn something new and my brain is trying to get out of having to do the work 
I already know how to do programming, so like let me just start hacking at it and I'll figure it out myself is what is what's going through my head. But the point about just actively working on it without imposing expectations. Plus too, like when I'm in that situation I feel like I have to read everything twice. I have to read it at least once to just like pound my brain into the shape of the vessel that can like later like take in the information the next time I read it. Yeah. But it really feels like well, patience is the word I want to use, but you you explicitly described something different. But it feels like that kind of just, uh, you just have to keep working at it and set some small, tiny goal that you're going to make with it and keep moving and not not immediately expect yourself to be able to read a paragraph once and then implement an algorithm in five minutes. That reminds me of this passage from Brent's recent blog post, his secret diary, his secret project diary, number four, where he has this passage where he says, a third is that I have the luxury of shipping whenever, which means my process goes like this. Write the code to understand the problem, then write it again, now that I understand it. A lot of the way I work now has been shaped by writing on Red. Like, I started working on it just a few days after our son was born. And, you know, the first three months of having a baby is just a hellish nightmare with no end. (laughs) You know, every baby's a little different, so you figure out the tricks that you have to do to sort of get this kid to go to sleep. One of the few things that worked was if I held him in a very particular way and walked back and forth he'd fall asleep he knew if i had stopped walking and he would cry oh no (laughs) and i would just pace up and down this really really long porch talking out loud to myself about like class names and property names sort of writing it all out in my head and then you know hours later when i was able to put him down i would run to the keyboard and like type everything out as quickly as i could before i forgot it all (laughs) and uh to this day i still work like that whenever i'm starting something like big and complicated i just do you pick up your son? I hold a little toy. Yeah, I pick up my son. He's like 40 pounds now. <laughs> you taking him home early from school today? Yeah, yeah. You must be starting a big project. Oh, you bet. When he's 18, it's going to get kind of strange. but <laughs> Maybe the apps get better the heavier they get. I haven't tried that. <laughs> That's a good process, though, to like, just as a way that you've ended up having to, well, like planning the thing before you start typing any code in, for one thing. It, boils everything down to like the basics like you can surround yourself with tools and think it's the right pen or having the fancy italian notebook but really the one thing that you can't reduce anymore is the like the thought work behind it Hmm. i I think that's why for me the the pacing around and talking out loud like a a madman method works so well is that i'm you know i'm not distracting myself with anything else but the really really painful part and i just have to rip it off like a band-aid and get through it right and do you find after you after you follow that process that when you do type in the code that it more or less works like or do you once you start implementing it do you start realizing oh, okay that seemed okay in my head but now that i see it it's not going to work from time to time swift helps a lot too everything just kind of works the first time you write it with swift because it won't let you write it in a stupid way yeah we're still way behind on the swift curve well my, my idea at the moment is to just uh take a small side project or a rewrite of a side project i already have on the store and make that swift because that's something I can definitely do in a weekend. What was the name of that app you guys talked about on a previous episode, like the the Angelus? Oh yeah, Angelus twenty four seven. Yeah, that's that's Ashin's one. Have, have you made much progress on that yet? That'll be swift. No, I haven't <laughs> gone near the Angelus yet. I did try to make the um, Alvin based on the I am sitting in a room, but it didn't work out very well. It basically it didn't turn into the sounds from around the room reinforcing themselves. It just turned into the distortion between the iPhone microphone and speaker 
reinforcing itself into a very high-pitched moan. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds great. I'm glad I sat down and did it for an hour at least. <laughs> <laughs> so, Ashin, you, you keep lists of, I've seen these on your phone, very secret lists of all the app ideas that you come up with. Um, and I tend to more just get excited about an idea and then either not do it or go and do it. But I don't, I don't have like a back catalog of lots of different ideas that I've had in the past. Hmm. Um, do, do you do you follow any kind of process like that, Jared? Or do you just... Yeah, I don't really write down when I have like a really good idea. I like especially make a point not to write it down. <laughs> because I'm always... It always, like, it always seems better. Like you get a little drunk, a little euphoric. Yeah. When you have a new idea and then like later you look back at it and you're like... What was that? So my friend, my friend Chris in high school, eleventh grade. He, you know, he had to make some poster to accompany a book report on uh, Scarlet Letter, something like that. And he came to school. Uh, I guess he had stayed up really late and smoked a lot of pot. Mm -hmm. And the poster he had made had like nothing to do with English literature by a long shot. <laughs> and it was like a drawing of a robot or something. And like in a really childish lettering, he wrote, "Killer Diller Robot. It'll go mad, mad, bad, bad, gone." <laughs> beautiful he didn't get a good grade but he really made an impression on me yeah there's definitely a difference between how something sounds inside your head and how it sounds outside your head <laughs> so you've had a few side projects over the past couple of years um you were working on a tweet storm composer at one stage i remember but then i think we, there was the rumor started that twitter was going to allow book-length tweets so i think that was what put you off doing that one in the end was it <laughs> honestly i think what put me off more than anything else is i keep having these uh these days where i just like bail out of twitter altogether where i just get frustrated with like every other tweet is one of three kinds of tweets mm -hmm. it's something that's genuinely funny or interesting or it's really snarky apple jokes or it's just like jaw-droppingly sad bits of politics or world events <laughs> like in your face all the time and like i mean like yeah i read all that stuff i'm aware of that stuff i don't really need my social media i know it sounds like a terrible thing to say but like it's my downtime you know I, i'm done with work i'm done with reading the news i want to like check in something i i wish i could just see the like interesting stuff and the like palatably snarky stuff but uh, sometimes it's just too much, so I bail out. That's really more the reason why I didn't make... I was going to... I may ship it someday. It's. Uh, I was going to call it Stormcrow. Give it a really nerdy name. I would use that. It's got one big text view, and it, it auto-formats it, so you can tell like where one tweet ends and the next begins, and syntax highlights if you go over. Oh, nice. But uh, I kind of left it there. Some days I get into that euphoric, oh, this was the best idea I ever had. Why haven't I shipped this? <laughs> and then I sit down to start on it, and I realize... Oh, it's not the best idea I ever had. It's I think I'm going to make a lot of pizza money really quick, and that's just not enough to make me want to sit down and finish this app. You worked on an audio client for a while as well, right? Until that shut down. Yeah. Oh, I miss audio. It was so nice. Yeah. Again, that was one of those things where like, uh, I like the service, but there's just these little things that bug me about the app. Mm. So like, I looked at their API, and their API was great. So I was building that. I think. Just my brother and I had it, and then they shut down. R.I.P. Bad timing. <laughs> but they, they had conditions where they didn't allow commercial use of their API, right? Oh, oh yeah. It's like uh, 
when you play Magic the Gathering and you like figure out like these two cards that eventually become illegal because when you put them together into the same deck, like nobody can beat you. Like there's this weird mashup of Apple policy and music industry policy that just totally ruins any chance that you could monetize the app. So you can't monetize the app, not with ads, not with in-app purchases, not with paid up front, but you can enroll in a profit sharing program where you get like a little kickback for referrals. But then Apple's policies kick in and you can't like offer someone else's apps in-app purchase or open the website to allow them to purchase it inside the app. So like there's literally like no way you could ever make money off the app. It has to be free forever and all time. Yeah, we we haven't we haven't talked about this before, but for a few months um, around the I think it was around the time that we bought Unread, um, we did some work with Panic in Portland. One of their uh, programmers was he was taking a year off basically, and so we filled in for him while he was gone uh, for about three or four months, and we worked on an app, a music sharing app. I won't won't go into too much detail about it because it's not really my place to explain it all. But um, the thing that killed it ultimately was the lack of a business model. Like it was a pretty cool way to share music with your friends of what like what new albums you've got recently and what you like. But there was just no way to make it work from a money point of view. Mm-hmm. So it's it's sad that I mean this kind of gets back to the idea of making making nice apps for reasons other than money, I guess. But it's sad that there are all these cool ideas that might be really neat if they existed, but they just don't have a business model that can support them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's super depressing if you think about it too long. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, I, I think that's what's nice about the love idea, although I don't think it answers. So the idea that we just make the apps because it's our hobby, but are you going to make like a banking app as your hobby or like an accounts <laughs> app or <laughs> like there's a lot of apps that maybe could be very good, but that's not going to be the, the first thing you think of. Was that old onion headline? I provide office solutions as pitiful little man. <laughs> yeah, that's my passion. <laughs> okay. So let's talk about your, your new side project. So do you want to, do you want to tell us about it a little bit? Yeah, I am uh, making a podcast app, which is, a terrible idea. <laughs> okay, this episode is over now. <laughs> Honestly, I really... Uh, I was worried, like, after I'd gotten through that initial euphoric phase and I realized, wait a minute, I've broken through my funk and I can now... I am now free to work on a side project and enjoy it and I figured out how not to let it turn into work. When I, like, reached that point, like, my immediate next thought was, but wait a minute, ugh. I can't do this because I have two uh, two good friends that uh, make you know one of the preeminent podcast apps out there, and I don't want to. There's room at the bottom of the charts for all of us. <laughs> 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 yeah, that that should be like the inspirational cat poster for indie developers right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm making a podcast app called Sodes. Again, same thing. I just get really fussy about wanting an app to look and work a certain way. And because I have the ability to do so, I can act on this. And it, it ends up being a really fun way because uh, I'm learning all the time how impressed that 
we all should be at Castro because there's so many problem domains that it has to, to cross and it ends up being a fun learning project. I'm doing it on Swift. Uh, so it's got that, you know, it's got networking, it's got text parsing and text processing. It's got, you have to use like some kind of audio AV foundation or something else. And I want some kind of server side component because I don't want to always and only work on client side software. So it's really impressive how many different things that it has to touch. And uh, all the time I'm finding, you know, like just last night I was looking through and I noticed like all these podcasts are sending episode titles with the name of the podcast prefixed at the beginning of the episode. Mm-hmm. And at first I thought I was misparsing things when I asked Padre, I'm like, are you guys stripping out the podcast name? Like, yep. Like you're doing more than that. Like... <laughs> Last night I learned what Windows code pages are because you guys have to strip that crap out of there too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because people use smart quotes that aren't encoded properly. Yeah, and all of this stuff is like a hygiene feature. You can't like, you know, put a bullet point on top of the app store. Like, we strip Windows code pages marks from all of your podcast names. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like I love that idea, like a hygiene feature. Like if you have it, nobody cares. If you don't have it, everybody's going to complain about it. You know? Yeah, exactly. There's so much stuff like that. I think that's the other thing that like dooms a lot of love projects is that in order to like get to the point where you're making a unique contribution to a problem domain, you first have to like put down all of this scaffolding and pave all these roads and build all of these buildings that are just like the, the like basic expected features before you can then like expand out. Yeah, and I feel like that's even increasing more over time the things that people will start to expect as like the the basic building blocks, like even in terms of where's Castro's iPad app and why doesn't it sync and that kind of stuff. And, and watch app. Watch, what whatever. Like over time, the level just like keeps on rising. I think there's an interesting point there about that design playground idea. I first heard this around Twitter clients when I think around the time Tweety came out that other people started making cool Twitter clients as well. And this idea that uh, Twitter clients were a design playground because you could design a new UI and then hook it up to the Twitter API and then you were all set. But I think those design playgrounds can only happen when you have some kind of stable API that's doing like that's doing all the bullshit work for you in the background. So when it comes to a podcast app, at least, I'm sure many other apps are very complicated too once you get into the details of them. But when it comes to a podcast app, at least there are all these extra things you have to do that are just not exactly just the cool stuff you could post to Dribble. Mm-hmm. So when you announced it first, you mentioned that it was uh, for fussy, I think fussy casual was the phrase. Yeah. A bare bones podcast listening app for fussy casual folks like me. So I think you, you probably have a pretty clear idea of who it's for or uh, like what the feature set you're trying to get to is, right? If it was If it was a camera... It would be, you know, point and shoot. Like, I'm busy enough. I'm, you know, fretting enough about work stuff. I don't want to have to think about settings and configurations and, and downloads and all that. I wanted to work more like Netflix where, you know, I tap a show, I tap an episode, and then it plays. Streaming only. I don't... Any of that stuff that matters to a lot of people, but uh, it's never really mattered to me. Okay. Yeah. You told me at the time you were moving... You're, you were in Indiana, right? Or have you moved? Yeah, we're in Oklahoma City now. Okay, right. And you said that I think you'd be doing a lot of driving? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, this is not a pedestrian-friendly city by any stretch of the imagination. So, like, yeah, there's definitely a lot more time spent in the car. And that's the other thing, too, is the uh, I put my phone up in the dashboard mount. And so reaching out at arm's length, most apps use standard size buttons, which are way too small. 
maybe I'm just getting older and my vision's not as good, but I like really big jumbo buttons, especially for in the car, so you don't accidentally like change the episode or skip farther ahead than you meant to. Right. My, my wife sees the app from time to time in the car, and she was she was making fun of like how big the buttons were. She's like, why are you doing it this way? And then like one day she's sitting in the passenger seat and she needs to ask me a question and she reaches up and pauses it. And I go, see, see, and she goes, yeah, you're right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's a really good thing to focus on for sure. Like I've read a little bit of research about how and when people listen to podcasts and a huge percentage is in the car, which seems totally obvious really when you think about it, but very few apps are designed to work well in that situation a surprising number of people seem to have carplay cars so we get a lot of requests for that and you know like a lot of apps designed around not just podcast apps they're around that like 44 point rule and i mean that rule was determined by apple before the iphone ever launched when it was presumably still a 320 by 480 screen so there's not a lot of available real estate back then right and part of me wonders if that was like this is the smallest, like for us, like assuming a square button, like this is the smallest you should make, make a button. Right. But now that like most phones are bigger, uh, maybe that rule should be changed. Yeah. Cause that pressure, the pressure to have it as small as possible so that you can fit five buttons on a screen. That's not quite there anymore, especially with these giant plus ones. But I think for a car especially, it's not even so much around, like that the 44 points is based on the phone is sitting in the palm of your hand, right? Whereas in the car... It's like maybe on the dashboard or in some sort of holder. So you're, reach, you're reaching further. So 44 points doesn't definitely doesn't apply anymore. Yeah. Well, the, the origins of the like usability studies for things like that go back to the, the Air Force. Uh, pilots kept dying all the time because the cockpits were so poorly designed. They'd put like the eject button next to the button that like makes a phone call or whatever it would be. <laughs> you know? <laughs> like the button that you never ever ever want to push unless you mean to was next to the button that like did almost nothing and you pushed it all the time and they got tired of like how many pilots kept dying because of you know, human error so they created this little uh unit and that was their mandate like how do we not kill so many pilots and so they figured out okay like you know it's it's much more difficult for example when they hit a hit a target that is small and at the periphery. So if something is at the periphery of the like grid of controls, it should be larger and you should never put a destructive button next to commonly used buttons, et cetera, et cetera. And Apple breaks these decades old rules all the time. Like think about an iPad Pro and you open up Safari or Mail and there's this comically small 44 point <laughs> tall toolbar at the top and the bottom. Like really? Like I'm gonna reach like literally like like a foot, yeah, away from me to hit this like thing that's smaller than a dime. Like you're really not constrained for space here anymore. It's ridiculous. Yeah, I think when the size classes and all that stuff came around, it became clear that the pressure was almost more towards making scaled up iPhone apps versus making like this is a different platform that just happens to run the same operating system. I think the only reason maybe it hasn't changed is that. Uh, you know, if you archive the wrong email message, you're not going to, like, be thrown out of the window of your car. I think success hides failure with a lot of these things. Like, you can accidentally archive the wrong email a thousand times per year, and you're still not going to change phone for that reason. Yeah. Like, because the rest is, the overall situation is, or you're you're happy enough with your, your current phone overall, so you forgive all these small things. There's a great episode of, I think it's 99% Invisible, called Averages. Um, and that gets into cockpit design as well. 
but it was around the idea of like standard sizes and that they were like building this layout and the size and the seat positions of cockpits based on like what's an what's an average human um and it was a similar situation where then there was like there was lots of accidents lots of deaths and they were trying to figure it out um and i can't remember the name of the guy but some guy decided to basically compare okay we're designing for the average person how many people are average and it was like okay nobody is average so we're like by designing for the average we end up designing for nobody um <laughs> and so like that's where then they started i mean it sounds so obvious now but that's where they started like it was like okay we need to make adjustable seats we need to do stuff like that and ios like has some accommodations with with type and stuff like that for like how you can adjust it based on your eyesight for example but it's all just based on type it's never you can't be like okay make all the buttons bigger for example there was one part in that that I want to bring up as well in that 99% invisible episode where initially when all these these when these pilots were dying in these new really fast jets that they made the initial reaction was like oh it's just it's really hard to fly these they're like these jets are so amazing and so fast that it's just hard for a human to do it <laughs> I was just so impressed by the jet I was flying that yeah. I just had to eject <laughs> I just love this engineering idea that like, oh, you just, you know, these humans aren't good enough for my machine. <laughs> it's such a programmer reaction to of like, no, it's probably not a bug. It's probably just you. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'm glad they figured that out. I think about that episode all the time now, just in terms of averages, because people, I keep seeing people worrying that the AirPods won't fit their unique snowflake ears. And I think about like, okay, well, if they, Apple only designs one size of them, it's like usually with other earphones, you can, there's like at least three sizes or you can buy different tips for them or those kinds of things. Hmm. And I, I wonder sometimes if they've thought about averages and standard deviations and stuff. I'm sure they have, they know what they're doing, but it's an interesting point all the same. All right. We've, we've drifted off sodes a little bit. Let's get back to that. Um, do you have plans for a business model or are you just not going to think about it and enjoy the process of making it? <sighs> That's a good question. I'm going to charge some amount of money for two reasons. One is it, you know, it would be nice to have a little extra pizza and beer money on the side. Mm -hmm. And the other is charging something means that you have fewer people using it, which means you have less email and support to deal with. Mm hmm. Yeah, definitely. Like, it's almost worth making it $100 just so, like, <laughs> only, like, five people will buy it and we'll be able to chat about it. Right. So it's it's definitely more about making the making the thing than it turning into a business. Yeah, and then, then remember the other part is uh, I want to have some kind of server component to it, and that has an ongoing cost. Like, there's, like, a minimal cost to that. Yeah, you can keep it low, but it's it's a real ongoing cost. So, mm -hmm. I mean, like it could easily be like one hundred, two hundred dollars a month, even for just like a small app that only a handful of people are using, because you have to keep. Um, I may end up doing something like Amazon Lambda, even mm -hmm. though I would learn less overall because I wouldn't have to manage, you know, the stack. But uh, the cost might be better because I wouldn't. I would only pay for when it's used, and then. Right. Uh, not have anything provisioned all the time. But yeah, like, and that, and that brings up another point with, you know, this idea of like working on apps as like a love project is, and about hygiene features, there's a lot of stuff 
that you just can't do if you don't have a, I don't know if this is like publicly or if it was just a chat with you, Padraig, but talking with you about the the stuff that you guys made for Kester 2, uh, you remarked something like, like, it's just such a liberating feeling, like, now that you have this, like, new piece of, like, technology and, like, knowledge and experience under your belt, there's so many other ideas that you can have and not immediately dismiss because you can't do them. Sure, about server stuff in particular. Right, right. And, like, even if you have the the knowledge to do a particular thing, and even if you're using, like, the like cheapest possible Amazon web service stuff, there's still a cost to that. And not a lot of people make enough money to spend $100 a month out of pocket for a scalable Amazon service that only 20 people are going to use. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So you mentioned that, like, since you started on SODs, you've, like, started to see, like, all the different sides of it that we're going to need to address. I mean, does it still feel like it's addressable as a side project, or do you ever get worried that it's going to grow bigger and bigger and not be able to be done as a side project? I think in the end it could be pretty big, um, but over a long period of time. And I'm okay with that. Again, because it's the, the other part of it is trying to learn how to, you know, give myself time. Going back to that Joe Himes quote, like give myself enough time to to work actively towards this really big project without caring if it takes me a year or three years to finish. Mm. That's cool. And also a lot of the things that I want to learn like are necessarily complicated or bigger like i don't want to restrict it to just things that i can finish quickly because the other benefit of having a side project is ongoing education because yeah i think so some of the ideas you've had ashin are more about multimedia experiences or something it doesn't seem so much about like oh I, i need a project so that i can learn how to do servers or learn how to do swift yeah for me so far at least it definitely hasn't been about necessarily educating myself it's been more expressing different things i don't know why i honed in on that (laughs) well i mean i think what's interesting there is just the different motivations that we can have for what like why we take on side projects it varies quite a lot yeah definitely so you built on red uh it ran for a while and then it didn't make as much money as it needed to to keep working out for you so what's different about now like if you if you had made just finished making on red now but had the outlook of uh I'm just going to make something that I want to make that I want to use uh would you continue with on red or how does how does that all reconcile At the time I was making on red I did not have a day job um and I was not doing client work either uh I'd made repost and this was during the time that app.net was still giving out a very generous monthly profit sharing thing i don't remember what they called it the developer incentive program and uh, repost got a pretty big portion of that because uh, a lot of people liked it hmm. oh cool which was uh we were very fortunate for that and app.net didn't have to do that they were very generous and that really funded most of unred's development like those first six or eight months right but then they stopped doing that and you know i mean that was, that was fine. There was, like, no hard feelings there. Um, and what it did, put all this pressure on, on Red to, like, make money. And I was looking at the, the graphs, and I realized, like, if this is to turn into something sustainable, it is not going to be something I could do quickly. It's going to take a really long time, which means I need to, uh, you know, 
put in some other kind of income. And I, I looked around for some temporary stuff, some like client work stuff, and like everything I was about to line up would just fall through at the last minute. And it became really, really stressful. And so I decided, you know what, I just, I have to get a full-time job. I can't only look for temporary stuff anymore. Our kid at the time was like one or two. My wife and I are living in a small town where we literally, like literally have no friends or family. So we were just constantly trading off who was, who had Henry duty. Right. So we called it. And so I was like, there's no way I can fit unread and a full-time job all, all together. So um, that was really what drove that decision. What's different now is uh, I have a day job that is a lot more work-life balance friendly. Okay. I work for Black Pixel. We do client work, and it's great. I, I love my job. When you work for a startup, there's this like constant pressure to work 60, 80-hour work weeks, and they don't understand why you would ever want to do anything else. But when you do work for clients like your time has a dollar amount attached to it you're tracking your time and like it's more important that you reach a predictable number of hours than spending all of your available time and that has been such uh just like all the time i'm realizing uh, i don't know why i didn't do this before <laughs> you know i don't <laughs> know why i ever thought working for a startup or starting a startup was such a good idea like it's just so cell-sucking, and like I, it's very rare to meet a startup that isn't just brimful of bullshit. And you know, working at Black Pixel has been great. Yeah, it sounds like you've landed at a good place. Yeah, and you know that having a more balanced schedule has made it easier to find those fifteen minutes here and there. Like I can find that fifteen minutes like every day of the week. Yeah, and moving to Oklahoma City, we have family here now, and so that helps too because we're not constantly. Like on the weekends, we, we do have some time where the kid will go off with his grandparents and then that 15 minutes is like a big four or five hour block, which is great too. Right. Yeah. So yeah, you have to, it's, you have to take a holistic view of it. You have to, something else that really frustrates me too is a lot of advice that floats out there about, you know, like hobbies and, you know, do what you love is so blind to the like, you know, it's like that check your privilege thing. Like it's so blind to the circumstances that make such an idea possible in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. You know, if you are a single parent mother with one or more kids and you don't have a college degree and you're working on one, maybe you're like getting your, you know, prerequisite coursework done at a community college at night. Like what value does do what you love have for somebody in that situation? Like it's just so pretentious. The advice that really matters that no one ever shares is like, how did you make that transition from a crappy job you hated that didn't pay enough to the job that you love? Like, what sacrifices did you make? Like, what things did you not buy for yourself? Did you not, were you not able to do for yourself in order to like get there? And like, how did you motivate yourself? Like, you know, did you like suffer any kind of mental illness during that time and if so what did you do with that like that is like the like the advice that really matters not do what you love oh, great yeah i'm sure you never had a hard day in your life yeah i, I think do, do what you love is like the default position anyway like that's what you would want to do anyway it's not like it's this amazing idea that you never would have considered <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly oh thank you yeah i i, I I think about that probably more since we started the podcast, even because we're, you know, coming on every week and, you know, variously complaining about Apple things or, 
how it's been hard to make a business out of this stuff. And then when I try to count my blessings, it's overwhelming. I guess we should definitely take a moment to show some, some gratitude for where we are, at least. Totally. One piece of advice that I give to young people when they're like, when I meet somebody that's not sure what they want to do, and, you know, they don't come from a family with a lot of means, and so, you know, wherever they end up, it's going to take a lot of work to get there. Like, um, I suggest, like, you know, look for, look for a job, and there's a lot of these in the medical world, look for a job that takes a combination of, like, like physical finesse and uh, higher education, but not a lot of it. Mm. Like enough of it that you could do it part-time and be done quickly, especially if that job is one that's like a 12-hour shift. Because then you can get all your work done three days a week, have four days off every week, and you're making a full-time salary and probably making more than you did before you started started it all. Mm. Uh, before I was a programmer, I was a registered nurse, and that was exactly why I did that. Before I was a nurse, I threw a screwdriver around fixing Macs, and it made not very much money. Mm. And it was five days a week. And so, you know, like finding that 15 minutes for something else, even being single was hard because, like, you, like, once you, like, layer in getting up in the morning and going to bed at night and, like, taking care of, like, groceries and, and your bills and all that stuff, when all of that stuff is, like, totaled up. And you also subtract the time you spent sleeping. There's these very narrow windows where you like suddenly have to like hard shift gears from the state, whatever state your mind was in when you come home from your soul sucking hourly shift job. And like you're supposed to sit down and like have this creative euphoric moment where you're <laughs> making a beautiful painting or like reading a difficult book. Yeah. Versus get all of that work crap done three days out of the week. And like another day that you take care of all of your errands and stuff, because if it's a, you know, three days a week, then you're, you're going to get one of those days on a weekday when everything's open. And then there's like three days left for a long weekend every week. And that really works. So like, you know, like CAT scans and like, uh, phlebotomists and uh, x-ray technicians, like all of this stuff where you get to work with the patients, but you also have to have like a lot of like technical knowledge about how all those things work. Uh, those are great places to be because then you either find out you love it and then you can do it forever and like work your way up into other kind of fields or you find out that you don't love it but it's better than the job you had before and now you actually have like a means to fund whatever that you know do what you love thing is next yeah yeah now that sounds like that sounds like pretty good advice all right yeah And, and that's not something everybody has access to but if you do and you're not sure where to go i definitely recommend following that kind of path that seems like an interesting answer to another point we were going to get to later which is um in the aftermath of you finishing up on red um ben thompson wrote an article on stratechery that uh developers should be building a business not an app which i think it definitely it was a, a great point um but i think it's interesting to come to a solution to that problem that's not you build a business. It's like you find another way to sub to like cover your time so that you can build an app separately. Because and the the key point here is that sometimes sometimes the app that you would build if you were focusing solely on making a business isn't anything that excites you or some anything that makes you want to get up in the morning. So the, his example was somebody making a dictionary app that had licensed certain dictionaries, which seems seems to have been going great for him. Um, but that's not in any way what I would be excited about. I think 
the solution to the problem we have is more about how do you make it so that you get to make apps that you wanted to make. It's not how do you change what you're making completely into something that might work out in the market. Yeah, totally. No, I, I remember that article and uh, I thought about it a lot in the months after you wrote it. And I've come to pretty much wholeheartedly agree with everything you wrote in there. W one of the things that it, it reminds me of is you remember back when, I think it was 2012, Steve Jobs' last keynote, where he was introducing iCloud and he talked about how previously it was the Mac that was the digital hub of your digital life and now the Mac was going to be demoted to just another device and it was the cloud the iCloud that would be the hub. Right. Hmm. The same idea, uh, I think, about all of the activities around making an app, like the stuff, like we talked about earlier, like, you know, getting through all of the hygiene features so you can get to the part that is, like, why you're making it, like, what's really fun about it. Mm -hmm. All of those activities are kind of now demoted to just another skill that a sustainable business has to have in order to solve some problem for the customer. More and more, it's it's just not possible for apps to for the app to be the like end product where like I'm giving you money in exchange for the app. More often than not, now like I'm giving you money for some other problem or from some like overarching problem, and the app that I get is like an aspect of that. Maybe it's messaging, and so we're paying Slack in order to have all of these professional, these pro features enabled, but we get the apps, which are great, but we get them for free because it's like just an aspect of the business or Dropbox or Uber or Airbnb, like all of these like massive big companies, like they all need apps, but they're, they're just infrastructure and that's okay. But it's been a challenge because when you come at the problem and you're like, oh, I love making cool animations. I love you know, thinking through the design so that it's physically comfortable and usable and, and pretty. And to go from, you know, those years from 2008 until relatively recently when, when those things actually made you a lot of money, you know, like when you could lease a note-taking app and clear $15,000 a day for the first week, that's how it was. To go from that to now can be super depressing if your goal is to make money doing those activities that are fun. But the, the mindset I think now has to be like, yes, you can enjoy all of those activities, but they have to get demoted to just other skills like marketing and uh, sales and like all of these different aspects and that are just tools that you apply to solve some problem that actually matters to people. That idea is Another thing that drove me out of trying to do the indie thing again is because all of the problems that I could think of, because then like my, your mind starts to shift and it's like, okay, well, what is a, like, maybe I can get excited about the problem that I'm solving, you know, like mm. if I can't put all of my like personal satisfaction eggs into the app development basket, like maybe the, like that problem in total is something that either has a noble purpose or is just a problem that is like near and dear to me, like healthcare software. You know, I used to be a nurse and healthcare software sucks. And I actually spent a long time trying to start a company around healthcare software. Uh, I failed because I was a kid and I didn't know what I was doing, but I did get far enough along to like get a sense of how, what drove me into it in the first place, you know, wanting a nice user interface for the nurses was just such a small 
aspect overall of what had to happen in order to make all the other things that would have to happen in order to like create a space where that software could come into existence in the first place. Anyway, but like all of the problems that I would think of that were like satisfying are all problems I could not do by myself. I would have to have a team, which means you have to have a lot of money, which means you probably need venture funding because it's software and there's like these massive upfront expenses in order to write all the software in the first place. Right. And, you know, I'm also looking at our personal life, how we're going to end up in Oklahoma City, which is nice, but it's not exactly a place that has any kind of like venture capital environment. It doesn't have a lot of iOS developers, doesn't have a lot of, you know, developers in general. It's just not going to be like a wonderful place to build some of the ideas that I had. So I had to kind of let it go and like change how I thought about my relationship to software. But I think, I think that's something else to think about too, is like if your objective is to, to have a sustainable business, it doesn't necessarily have to be as big as doing something in healthcare, but to think about it more of like the overall problem. So, I mean, do you think that's completely intrinsic then to like, say the types of apps that we've liked to make before, like on Red or Castro or Sods, for example, like, do you think there's any changes that Apple can make or that developers can make that will help facilitate these type of apps being feasible as businesses? Or do you think it's just not possible? I don't want to say it's not possible. I think it's, it's like that thing that Brent said uh, when he was on your show. Towards the end, he was talking about like indie bands. Some bands go on to top the charts and have really exciting careers, and other bands are lucky to play at the corner pub. And I really think that's that's probably more likely to be the case is there are going to be exceptions to everything. There are going to be apps like OmniFocus where they are still very much an indie company and they make an app where the app is the end product. Like I give you $20 and I get OmniFocus for iPhone and they're making it work. I don't think everybody's going to be able to do that. And a lot of it I think is camping out the right niche and having the persistence to stick with it, to stay relevant. Like if you weren't lucky enough to be the first or like the first memorable one, like the first one to like corner the niche, like one password or the Chinese dictionary app that uh, Ben Thompson mentioned in that blog post. I think all, that's what, ha that's what all of those kind of apps in my opinion have in common is that like, these are apps that like found their niche and did it better and for longer than anybody else. I, I think that's, something in that too but it, again it's like like indie bands it's like trying to figure out why were the beatles so much better than a band you never heard of <laughs> right you know like there's only so much analysis is going to be able to like get out of that for you a lot of it is just did you meet the right person at the right time in the right decade with the right you know cocktail of drugs around you <laughs> One thought about being in the right place at the right time. I mean, people have like spoken about like the heyday of the App Store, like say when it first launched, um, and more recently with the launch of iOS ten, there's been writing um, about how like this new iMessage App Store is like a new frontier for ideas and for new sources of revenue. Um, I can't remember where I'll find the link for the show notes, but there was an article around how the like the vast majority of revenue in the iMessage app store was being made from paid apps right now, for example. 
and there seems to be this idea in the air that like oh perhaps this is like a new frontier kind of like how when the well the iphone app store at the time how that started what do you what, what do you reckon about iMessage apps do you think there's like a they're the next big thing or not they're, they seem to be making some money right now but do you think that's going to last no, I'm pretty pessimistic about it. <laughs> I think it's going to be just like the, the regular app store. I think like, what was the, some blog post I read this week called it app fatigue, hmm. where you just, you're just like, you're all the apps that you already have are good enough that it takes a lot to like make you want to go download an app anymore. And I think that's ultimately, I don't want to say a good thing, but it's a natural thing. I don't think it's something bad or dire. I think it's just, um, you know, we've gotten through those initial euphoric years where there there were new things to be done all the time. Hmm. But now that we're through that, I think the mindset has to be more like Podrick said, I think it was on Twitter, where you were like, you know, the key was persistence. I think I think that's really the key is, you know, if you want to make a living on the App Store, uh, it takes a little bit of all of that, but it also takes uh, being willing to put in the long time that it takes to get your your app your business in the place where you're overcoming people's fatigue like they've long since heard about you and have become aware of you but now they're at this point where they're like you know what i've been putting off getting that app for too long i'm not going to do it hmm. there were so many things that just as we were launching castro 2 it i was reflecting on the difference between uh, the feeling of launching Castro 1 and Castro 2. And there were so many extra things that we had lined up. Like for Castro 1, we had no connections at Apple whatsoever. We were just submitting to the App Store and like praying that they would feature us somehow. And now they talk to us and we send emails back every few weeks. Connections with a bunch of press people who will actually see an email from Oshin or I and read it, which is not something you start off with. <laughs> right, right. Um, and yeah, a bunch of small things like that. Like we have a, a pretty small mailing list that we email too often and are gradually whittling away. <laughs> um, yeah, so those things, I mean, none of them are huge knockout points, but they're all like little things that make it a little bit more likely that it might work out for us. Yeah. The, the persistence thing, it's like, um, it reminds me of like, you know, I worked at a company where we, before we had used Slack, we used something else and all of us hated it. And all the time, you know, our managers was like, yeah, we're going to get Slack someday. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we hear you. We hate it too. We're going to get Slack. But it took, you know, six, 12 months. You know, in the meantime, employees were leaving, employees were getting hired and like saying, oh, now that I'm here and I've been here a month, I realize I hate this chat. How about Slack? Have you guys heard of it? Yes, we've all heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> but eventually, you know, eventually we moved over. Right. Yeah, there's a momentum thing there or something. Yeah, so like if if Slack had had measured their success by how quickly they could get everybody that they wanted versus, you know, and like as that snowballs, yeah, it probably looks like they're growing really quickly, but like you probably can't measure like the time from awareness to purchase. Hmm. There's a, a, like a Boolean thing here too, where it's like, how did you keep making apps? Oh, I kept making apps. <laughs> like you just keep going. If you keep going, then you keep going. You only stop when you stop. So it's like, I think there's interesting things in it to unpack for sure. But in a way, it's like it's hiding some detail of like, well, how did you get to keep going? Yeah. Like the like misplaced advice about, you know, doing what you love. Like, no, don't tell me about that. I know what I love. Like, tell me how I can get there. Like, tell me where do I, what part of my soul do I look into to find? Like, there's a word for it. 
the word is grit. There was, I wish I could remember where I read this, but somebody was looking for a way to objectively compare students to figure out why some students do so well throughout their careers and why others don't and, and, and map that to personality profiles and temperaments. And they found like the number one indicator was what they called grit. Like just being able to, to tolerate the discomfort of not having your goal yet longer than anybody else. Hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. I get nervous about explanations for success that center around your own actions. Obviously that's part of it, <laughs> but I feel like it's important to point out, which we already have twice, but the things around it. Mm -hmm. When we fail, there's a tendency to blame circumstances. And when we succeed, we thank ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> you know what my nightmare is? My nightmare is that AI is going to get good enough that people like launch Siri, they invoke Siri, and they're like, Siri, show me my finances for 2008. And uh, the finances appear on the interface. And you're like, no, I don't really like that. I don't understand it. Can you make it more like blah? And then like an app is written and compiled all of what we spend a year doing is done in a few moments. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I picture, I picture like a video game company doing this where they're like, okay, our graphics capabilities in this console are so good that we physically can't hire enough people to build a, you know, you're already starting to see this a little bit with, uh, what's it called, like No Man's Sky, you know, procedurally generated environments. Like you get you get to the point where like, the procedures that we use now aren't good enough. So they have to build some sort of artificially intelligent tool where you can tell it, like, have a conversation with it. No, I want it to be a little bit more Dickensian. And they know what you mean. And then, like, at some point later, we will have realized in retrospect, oh, they just built the thing that can obsolete all of the work that we did. <laughs> this is probably one of those classic things that you put on like put on the gravestone of someone who was trampled by technology and the march of the future. But it's like, I guess I see so many of the details of what is wrong with software now and like the way, the stupid ways things go wrong, like uh, windows code pages in RSS feeds. And it's just hard for me to picture the day that like, that's all working so well that this AI stuff can work. But I said this about self-driving cars that, and now they basically exist. So yeah. Like, I guess it's where things are going, though, so I shouldn't keep my eyes closed. <laughs> well, when I wrote future trends on the on the uh, preparatory notes, I did not think we were going to go this far into the future. <laughs> <laughs> okay, podcast apps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess to bring it back to podcast apps and, like, the future of podcasting even, um, I mean, one thing that we've wondered about recently, there's so many, like, articles about how it's the second wave of podcasting and it's going to it's getting more and more mainstream. Like one statistic is that there's like, I think 5 million people download This American Life every week. But even by like the most generous estimations of third-party podcast apps, even altogether, we have a, a pretty small share. Not to focus too much on the apps for a second, but like how mainstream do you think podcasting will become? I like a lot of what Ben Thompson has uh, talked about on uh, the Exponent podcast mm -hmm. that they make. Um, they've talked about the future of podcasting a lot. And uh, it's hard to argue with what he says. Uh, if I could paraphrase, either it's not going to take off and it'll just like fizzle out, or eventually the the winnings will go to the first aggregator that becomes big. Because the like all the incentives will be in alignment, right? If, if you've got 
a, a one-stop place for all the all the listeners to go and listen to the podcast that they want and find other podcasts and and get recommendations. And the podcasters are happy to be there because they're you know, they're getting something out of it. Like they're getting like right now the current system built as it is on RSS feeds, they get very little information about who is listening or how many people or how far they get or whether the ads are skipped over and they, they don't they don't know anything like that. But this, you know, theoretical aggregator, something like Stitcher, but you know, more popular, could realistically get to that. You know, Apple could do it. Yeah, I think right now Apple could own it in a like in a minute if they decided they wanted to. Yeah. But advertising is growing in podcasts, but the numbers are still very low. Like I think I I read recently enough that the total amount of money, like if you overestimate how much is made, it's still less than the total amount of money made by billboard sales in the US. It's way below radio. It's in small enough amounts that I don't think Facebook or Google or Apple really care. They'll probably keep toes in the water and if it does explode then maybe they'll do something but right now it seems like all of the interest is predicated on like oh it's going to grow 10 or 100 times so we're going to get in early i have problems seeing podcasting grow to that extent and maybe again maybe it's just because i'm in it so much but i just imagine a big part of radio being you press a button and now you have company it's just background sound it's not active listening where you've chosen a specific thing that you actually intend to hear what the person says. And I don't know, I don't think podcasts are well-placed to replace that. Like, they could, I guess, but I don't think they have it a big advantage over a radio that you just press a button on. Yeah. I mean, what I think has, like, driven a lot of, like, say, iTunes and for for videos and Netflix for, for movies and for TV stuff has been around, like, exclusive content deals. Um, you have Howl, which, like, is the, like, the official Earwolf client... And I mean, I think they're starting to experiment with like exclusive content that you can only get in Howl. Acast does similar stuff as well. So it'll be interesting and unfortunate, I think, to see like if it does start, like if stuff starts focusing like more in that direction. Where it's like, oh, if you want to listen to this, you have to use, you have to use like this one platform. Yeah. The Netflix model is pretty interesting, I think. Especially the no ads thing. Like if you can make a thing where there's you're paying some tiny subscription that you don't even care about that doesn't cover their costs and you none of your podcasts have ads and then everyone just signs up to that and then they figure out how to make money later <laughs> and make their own content too. Yeah. Yeah, that's an important point that I missed earlier is that uh, the content is really what's going to matter. So Audible, they have done this where you can pay. You pay a subscription to get their shows that they've made. I guess the shows haven't... I haven't only listened to one of them, but they haven't been breakout successes so far. But if they had one serial, then that could totally change the landscape. I remember seeing John Ronson mentioning that he had some new show that I was really looking forward to. And then I saw like in a follow up tweet that oh, it was like exclusive to Audible. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> it's part of Amazon Prime now, too, which lots of people get. So if you just have Amazon Prime, you get access to these. Mm. But anyway, I think the bigger point is a big company can just waltz in and take over. And there's no version of what Castro or any other third-party app does that stops that, I don't think. Maybe. Maybe they could. Um, that's that's what I find so fascinating about the future of podcasting is that if we take for granted that having a great show that's going to, you know, like Stranger Things probably led to a lot of people to sign up for Netflix because they heard about this show at work and they couldn't see it anywhere else. 
if that is like the end game, like you want to get to a point where there's a service that has ads and subscriptions or both and shows that you can only listen to there, that means that the people making that show, they know they kind of have all the power. Like, how do you get them to be willing to only be available on this one network? I think that's where VC, big money, to turn a phrase, comes in where with venture capital, somebody could get like the first few big names on, get them on board by promising a big paycheck, paycheck essentially. And then that's like the first, the first hurdle. And then you have the exclusive content. So you start getting users and then other people start going there because other users are already there, for example. It's a sad story to tell. <laughs> <laughs> but I think Netflix has also nurtured their own stuff over time, like House of Cards and uh, Master of None. Mm. Like they've had an, a good new show every year or two. I remember the HBO or the Netflix CEO saying that he they wanted to become HBO before HBO could become them. Mm. Yeah. If I was thinking, you know, I, I, a lot of my thinking about this stuff comes from Stratechery. And one of the things he talks about a lot is the smiling curve where... Like the middle of the curve is just going to be gutted and the only people left standing are going to be on the far right of the curve, aggregators like Facebook or BuzzFeed, and then at the far left, niche content producers that have a, a really loyal following. So I think what I would look for is some way to figure out what that, like I know I'm never going to be able to compete with the far right. I'm never going to have access to the money it takes to be bigger than Stitcher. But I could build something that is so appealing to niche podcasters that I'm able to provide some kind of service to them that gives them what they don't have now. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting for sure. God, you ever watch that show Sports Night? No, I haven't seen it. (laughs) Watch Sports Night. It was on for two seasons and canceled. It's Aaron Sorkin show before the West Wing. It's campy. It's so 90s. But, I mean, it just makes you feel like warm and cuddly, like hearing the Law & Order theme song come on. <laughs> makes me think about being a kid. But uh, in Sports Night, season two, there's this guy that's, like, talking about how he tells a story about the friend of the guy that invented television. He wasn't the guy that invented television. He wasn't an inventor. He wasn't a genius. But he looked at his friend, and he noticed that his friend had potential, and his friend was going to need a lot of glass tubes. And he said, I can make glass tubes. I know how to make glass tubes. And so he made his, like, he made his business successful just by, like, noticing what this brilliant mind next to him was doing and what he didn't have but needed and made that. Like, that, that I think, is the, the main thrust of this idea of, you know, building a business, not an app. It's not like building something boring rather than something you'd love. It's about... Noticing a need that you feel inspired by, that you don't mind waking up in the morning and saying, I provide office solutions for this, you know, and and doing that. (laughs) I have the phrase office solutions for podcasts stuck in my head now. And then that reminds me, Patrick, do you remember last year uh, we wanted to launch this website called that was to promote a fake app called Podcast Podcast Subscriber Pro 2000 TM or something like that. <laughs> Talking about personal yeah. projects for fun. That's what I want to see. I want to see apps that are like intentionally like the worst possible app. Like you should go check the app store before it gets pulled because of the new policies. But there's this company. Uh, what are they called? I'll look it up later. But they make little 8-bit style apps 
that I have to believe are intentionally bad. <laughs> <laughs> There's one, uh, the first one I, I found, I think it was Nevin Morgan found it and tweeted about it, where you are a guy with his hand on the table and you have to like push the button to make the knife go down and the knife is moving back and forth so you have to push it so it goes between the fingers <laughs> but, but if you get it wrong you cut off a finger and like that's it that's the entire game <laughs> and and so i was like oh this is funny i clicked the like developer apps button on the app store and there's oh, i remember now there's the one called king tennis where you are <laughs> some people are playing tennis and you're the king and you're in the audience and your job is to follow the ball and like tap the screen to make the head turn left or right. And if you turn in the wrong direction and the ball goes the other way, you lose. That's great. There's like 50 or 60 of these. They're all terrible. It's so great. Yeah, I think that's, that's definitely a good way to have fun with it. Protect yourself from the dangers of accidentally having a business. You know what's really inspiring to me is the Homestar Runner guys. I don't know if you guys we're into Homestar Runner. You sent me a link to it after I asked about the animated gif you made of you and Ashin speaking, having a chat in some kind of hell. I watched a few episodes, but I feel like I missed the, like I missed the moments in time in like early 2000s, I'm guessing, when I should have watched this. <laughs> yeah. So like so much about it could only have happened then and there. It was all built out of Flash. So it necessitated a web browser and Flash. So it couldn't have happened after mobile, and it couldn't have happened before the internet. It wasn't really cartoons. They were half interactive. They had Easter eggs, and you picked the order that you watched things. So yeah, I guess you could get it on DVD, but it's not really the same. You couldn't share it. You couldn't check in each week and see what it was. It was this very special thing. They had all their own original characters. They just made what they thought was funny. They happened to be really funny guys. Uh, it became a family business. Like one of the inspiring uh, images in my head is when I learned that their parents quit their day jobs so that they could handle all the merch. <laughs> That's brilliant. And so their like living room is just like full of shipping boxes and memorabilia and t-shirts and figures and stuff. And I think now, like now that everybody has a smartphone, why hasn't anybody done like a Homestar Runner style thing where you have original characters and original half interactive half passive content and the app is free and you use apple pay to buy the merchandise that's one idea i've had kicking around in my head i have the name of what i would call the show and the like the pixel art style but uh maybe one of these years i'll get around to it i definitely want to be in it <laughs> you already are <laughs> i really want an animated gif of me in hell i feel left out <laughs> i'll get on that let's all be together in hell Okay, I'll tell you what it was. So the idea was, uh, originally the idea was to make a game. And I always like those games uh, where you have like micro games, where you have like, you know, 500 three second long games back to back. And they're really ridiculous. And I was thinking about that, like, how could you do that on mobile? And, and then I got thinking, well, okay, so what is like the theme of this? And then I thought, what if it's like all of the like most terrible video games you've ever seen? or have never seen, uh, they die and they go to video game hell. <laughs> and so you're this character who accidentally falls to the bottom pit of video game hell and you have to play your way out like one game at a time on this like big stack of old, you know, arcade style games. That sounds awesome. And so I was going to call it Evil Arcade because <laughs> I did some Google searching and that wasn't really taken. There'd be like a death metal soundtrack. <laughs> it would like cut between death metal and then like boop, 
she would play through the games but then it sort of morphed into like what if it was a show whatever you would call homestar runner Mm -hmm. like homestar runner called evil arcade and like these were the characters and like what if you had like guest characters and so that's why i was thinking one day it's like oh what if you had a podcast where like you interviewed the people and then you like animated the episode with pixel art so i was like oh let's get um <laughs> oh he has a big beard <laughs> this would look great that's a gif just the beard bobbing up and down as he speaks <laughs> do you still have a big beard i still have it right here oh. in front of my microphone wonderful yeah, it's a built-in pop filter <laughs> <laughs> that was so surreal when i saw that tweet <laughs> yeah, I think I, I messaged you. It was the middle of the night for you, and I was like, oh my god, Ashin has to see this. <laughs> oh, okay. The app is called King of Tennis, and the app developer is Poppy. And no offense if you if this developer is listening and it's actually their best effort. <laughs> They're wonderful. Like, don't change a thing about how you work. Just look through them all. Uh, there's another one called that he makes called sausage 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 with exclamation points everywhere (laughs) and you're a hand holding a hamburger holding a hot dog bun and the hot dog falls down and you have to catch it so the hot dog is perfectly centered within the bun (laughs) (laughs) nice brave man is the one with the the knife uh hot dog panic (laughs) you have to get uh, there's a guy who only wants ketchup not mustard on his hot dogs or yeah, yeah. Only wants ketchup. Oh, and you're working behind the stand. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, yeah. I saw that on YouTube. It's brilliant. Yeah. God, there's so many of these things. <laughs> Is that King of Tennis? Yeah. <laughs> oh, we have some good sound effects to end this episode anyhow, for sure. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, I love those little apps. And it, it sucks that... So the general app store cleanup thing is good, I think. I think I'm happy about it, but... It sucks that all these little things are just going to go away. Yeah, you should definitely download all of the Poppy apps. Let's see, King of Tennis, last updated February 2012. Yeah, everybody should go and buy it and download it now before it's gone. Hmm. Yeah, no, that can't... That That's sad if stuff like that starts disappearing because it doesn't support Retina or something like that, I think. Like, I can understand it in some contexts, like around utility stuff or if something just crashes on launch, but like especially games and stuff or like people's personal projects... When some when that stuff just disappears, when I think there's potentially other answers around search and stuff like that, where the stuff could still be there but not be affecting the quality of the store. Yeah, I mean the root problem is that everything has to go through this app store, which is just a constructed situation. Like there's no actual reason it has to be that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's all jailbreak our phones. <laughs> eye drops from upstairs. <laughs> there's a guy standing on the ground, and you have to put eye drops in his eyes but the building gets taller <laughs> so like you're eventually like putting eye drops from 12 stories up. <laughs> okay i'm getting all of these i love this kind of stuff like like homestar runner where like or mystery science theater where these things that just they don't fit into anybody's preconceived categories and so most people just reject it but if you stick with it just a little longer and like learn like what kind of rules it's playing by and let it surprise you yeah i i I don't trust apple to have the sensitivity required to reject the right app i mean i have this vague hope that like we're gradually moving towards it being better like the 
the stuff with Phil Schiller changing some of the rules and the speed of App Store approvals, maybe on a long enough time scale that incremental change gets to a point where like you can just share a game with me and it doesn't have to go through the App Store. Yeah, maybe. That would yeah, that's the dream I think. <laughs> Um, all right, we're uh, we're coming up to two hours here, so I think we should probably wrap it up. Yeah, we're reaching a point where this episode is longer than every other episode of Super Top Podcast combined. So, <laughs> <laughs> good luck with the editing. So, thanks everybody for tuning in to the fifth episode of the Super Top Podcast with Jared Sinclair. Jared, if people want to stay in touch and find out about Sods, what's the best way to follow you online? On some days, Twitter, uh, Jared Sinclair, or uh, my website, Jared Sinclair. Dot com. Podrick, how do I stay in touch with you? <laughs> well, you can... I'm on iMessage and Slack, but um, my Twitter is... XXNDForLifeXX. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At Podrick XXNDForLife. <laughs> I'm Prendio2 on Twitter. That's P-R-E-N-D-I-O-2. And I'm going to insert some sound effect from a game or maybe many, many sound effects right now. And that's going to be the end of the episode. Boop, boop, beep, boop.